Books and Square Books in Oxford, an independent bookstore offering more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and bookseller recommendations. More at Libro.fm. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, December 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a look at the State Peer Committee's review on the agency charged with protecting Mississippi's neglected children. Then find out why experts want lawmakers to mandate a standard for record-keeping of inmates in Mississippi. And in our book club, meet author Steve Chesborough as he takes readers on a journey through the Mississippi blues scene. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The state agency charged with protecting Mississippi's neglected children lacks the accounting system and manpower it needs. That's according to a newly released report by the Joint Legislative Committee on Performance Evaluation and Expenditure Review, or simply Peer Committee. They say the Mississippi Department of Child Protection Services doesn't have a separate revenue tracking system from the Department of Human Services. CPS has had revenue shortfalls, and the committee isn't sure their financial data is accurate. James Barber is executive director of the Peer Committee staff. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier about lessons learned in the establishment of the agency. Prior to the Department of Child Protection Services being made a department, those services were provided by the Department of Human Services through its Division of Family and Children's Services. Because of that division within the Department of Human Services, there were federal funds available for the state to provide those services to the the children that needed those. When the legislature created the Department of Child Protection Services as a separate department because of the Olivia Y. lawsuit, the new Department of Child Protection Services did not have access to those federal funds. So as a result, the, the state funds that were appropriated were not sufficient to provide the level of services that were needed and that had been provided by the Department of Human Services. So the, as a result, the new Department of Child Protection Services encountered some deficit situations Uh, That happened a couple of times, and the legislature had to step in and appropriate more money. Now, the arrangement or the organizational structure makes the Department of Child Protection Services a sub-agency of DHS, although independent of DHS for uh, services that are directly provided by that department. That means that the Department of Child Protection Services now has access to those federal funds, but because you have two departments essentially providing services and accounting for those funds, and because Child Protection Services is not a standalone agency within the state accounting system, it's very difficult to to track the expenditures and know exactly uh, how much money is needed, how much money has been has been expended. And that's one of the reasons that those deficits occurred in the prior fiscal years. 
So what do you recommend that they do to rectify that? Do they have to get do they have their own accountant or how do they begin to correct that? One recommendation that the committee makes in the report is for the state auditor to do a forensic audit of DCPS funds just to unravel why those deficits have occurred. Uh, that's not to say that anybody has done anything inappropriate as far as misappropriating funds, but we thought it was necessary for the state to have a baseline as to what funds were made available and how those funds were expended once the new Department of Child Protection Services was established. The report also recommends that in the state accounting system that DCPS really ought to be set up as its own business area so that uh, funds, revenues, and expenditures can be accurately tracked to that particular department and not have to be tracked through the Department of Human Services. One reason the Department of Child Protection Services was made a separate agency was because of the Olivia Y. lawsuit. Uh, Your report talks about the caseloads that social workers have. How are they doing with caseloads? The Olivia Y. lawsuit uh, that was settled by the state in 2008 sets some uh, requirements on the state with regard to caseloads. For example, one of the requirement or mandate of the lawsuit settlement is that 90% of the child protection services caseworkers have to have caseloads which do not ex- do not exceed certain caseload standards. Now that's 90% is the requirement. Currently, only 57% of the DCPS caseworkers comply with those caseload standards. So in this report, what to you stands out is um, what encapsulates what the department needs to do to be effective moving forward and how it's doing at this point? The department has faced challenges with the new leadership that is in place with Justice Jess Dickinson We think they're really attempting to provide the services that are needed by the the foster children in the state. Uh, They do face some employment challenges. Uh, They do face some funding challenges. And the legislature is aware of all of that and has made good faith efforts over the last couple of sessions to provide the resources to make sure that those challenges can be addressed. Uh, This is not an easy job. There's roughly 5,000 foster children in the system in the state. So it's it's one that's not going to be easily uh, addressed. But I do believe the legislature, as well as the department working together, is making a good faith effort to make things more efficient, more accountable, and more transparent in the, the services that are being provided. James Barber with the Legislative Peer Committee. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insight. No problem. Thank you very much. Taylor Cheeseman is Chief of Staff for CPS. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they're seeking $25 million in additional funding for 2019 in order to continue improving the agency. I think what they've suggested is that there are some alternative ways to set up budgeting and magic, which is the state accounting system. Um, These are suggestions that we're open to. It's a priority for Commissioner Dickinson since he started has been to reform the budgeting practices of the agency. I think that was kind of highly talked about during last legislative session. Uh, So we've uh, 
developed some better internal budgeting processes, and we're excited to work with PEER and the Department of Finance Administration to develop better tracking processes in the state accounting system as well. Now, I know under the lawsuit, Olivia, why um, there are certain things that you have to do. You also have a connection with the Department of Human Services for funding purposes. What is it going to take to delineate where you begin, they end, in terms of spending? Because that's the confusing piece. It's working out well practically. So the you know we maintain separate operational control. The commissioner has uh, control of the agency as if it were a separate agency. Um, last year, we still had a separate state fund appropriation, or at least it was in the same appropriation bill, but identified separately for CPS. Um, so certainly in working through uh, the state accounting system and how we set things up, the Department of Human Services is going to be a part of that. Uh, but they've been a great partner and a great support to us, and we think we found a, a good arrangement for the agencies. Do you think that would adequately prevent deficits? I believe so. I think at the end of the day, um, uh, we are living within our means. Uh, we are asking for an increase in state funding in the coming legislative session. We hope that we get that increase, but at the end of the day, we will live within the budget the legislature appropriates for us. One of the other issues raised is the caseload, um, having caseworkers who have too large of a caseload. How do you deal with that? And I know staffing has been an issue. Well, part of that increase we're requesting is to fund additional positions so that we can put more caseworkers in the field. Um, we've engaged in a series of efforts to improve the retention of our caseworkers. And one of the things in the peer report that we're proud of is that it showed that we actually have a retention rate better than the national average for child welfare agencies. Um, that said, turnover in child welfare is always going to be a reality. Uh, but we feel that if we receive the additional funding that we've requested, that we can hire enough caseworkers to meet our caseload obligations. Last year, there was talk about changing the computer system so you could adequately follow cases and so forth. Is that being implemented? It's not. It's something that we are looking to do and is included in our budget request for the coming legislative session. Uh, this is actually two components. So we have a another deliverable in our litigation to implement a CWIS system. CWIS is the federally funded program for developing state-of-the-art child welfare information systems. There's a deadline to put one of those systems in place in Mississippi by June 30th of 2021, and so we are seeking funding to do so. It's also a practical consideration. MACWIS, which is our current system, is it's outdated, and it is cumbersome for the caseworkers that have to use it. Um, we depend on their ability to document information in that database system. So certainly it is something that we are pursuing and looking to do, but like many things, it's going to depend on funding. It sounds like the bulk of the things that Pierre points out are issues relative to funding and um, having the funding to track your monies, to hire people, that type of thing. I agree. I, that, that was something that we thought was positive about the peer report. Certainly it identified problems, but we believe that it confirmed that we're heading in the right direction to address those problems um, and that where an action is not being taken to address the problems, the reason is lack of funding. So we believe that we've put forth a budget request for the coming legislative session that if it was fully funded would meet the needs of the agency and would allow us uh, to advance uh, across all these fronts. 
Chief of Staff for Child Protection Services, Taylor Cheeseman, with our Desiree Frazier. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Coming up, find out why experts want lawmakers to mandate a standard for record-keeping of inmates in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Autocorrect is all about road trips this month. We want to hear your old-school riding-in-the-car games. We'll tell you some new-school, non-electronic games. Don't forget, Allison will be on hand to answer your mechanical questions. Today on Autocorrect at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The MacArthur Justice Center is releasing part two of a database that gives Mississippians a closer look into their county and regional jails. The online database shows Mississippi inmates, their charges, and how long they've been incarcerated. Compiled by Ole Miss Law students at the MacArthur Justice Center, findings show a 24% drop in the number of individuals jailed since April. Cliff Johnson is director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the information can help with some issues associated with incarceration. You know, there's a number of factors that we've raised concerns uh, about when it comes to lengthy pretrial incarceration. The human cost, I think, is most significant to me, the notion of, of you know, putting people's lives on hold and allowing them to suffer the consequences that you naturally suffer as a result of being incarcerated. Um, we've raised the concern about the cost to counties, uh, the fact that this is it's really expensive, and it's not so much about any significant analysis of whether we're safer as a result of these people being locked up. It's just a function of doing things the way we've always done them. And, and in Mississippi, doing thing the way, things the way we've always done them has gotten us in a lot of trouble. Um, and, and I'm also troubled about the fact that you know, it means that poor people get treated differently than people with money. You know, these people who are stuck in jail, whose names appear on the database we released today, these are people who can't afford to make bail. The people who had enough money to pay money bail, they went home. They're not in these jails, and they're not on this list. And that's just fundamentally unfair that poor people have a different experience in the criminal justice system, a worse experience, just because they don't have money. And I know you guys have been studying this for quite some time, and there was a report that came out in April. So how do they compare to what's been released in the database today? So we did see a significant decrease in the number of people in the county jails between our April report and our uh, our most recent report that was released today. And in fact, it's a 24% decline. Because the data is so spotty and uh, unreliable in many ways, as you and I discussed last week, um, we can't draw any firm conclusions as to why that decrease occurred. It could be problems with the data that we received in the first um, report, could be problems with the most recent data, but I do think we can we can say some things, and that is one, I think the fact that the database exists publicly and people have been able to see the names of people in jail, how long they've been there, has put pressure on people to to address issues of pretrial incarceration. I think 
to, I think, litigation that we've brought and SPLC and ACLU and others have brought around the issues of bail and long-term, long-term pretrial incarceration, debtors' prisons, I think that's had an impact. Three, I think the new Mississippi Rules of Criminal Procedure implemented by the Mississippi Supreme Court last year have had an impact. So I think that there are factors that are coming together to, to, uh, to decrease the number of people held um, in the county jails. But what we do see is that the duration remains long. More than half the people on this list, uh, or about half the people on this list, have been in jail more than 90 days, and, and in our minds, that's problematic. Well, let's talk about that database, where people can find it, um, what information is available, and how often will it be updated? The database is available at www.msjaildata.com. And if you go to msjaildata.com, you'll see um, an explanation of how we put all this together. You'll see a number of graphs and charts that will tell you county by county the names of everybody in the county jail, how long they've been there, what the charge is. There's a map you can scroll over county by county to see the average number of days people are held in jail, um, the maximum, the minimums. You can see comparisons of our April report to our November report. So there's a significant amount of information that you can access that's, I think, frankly, in you know a readable and understandable format. And I think it's important for citizens to, to know how their tax dollars are being spent, what's happening as far as the incarceration of other Mississippians and why they're there and why they're there so long. So all that information is there at msjldata.com. But I'll tell you that, you know, the notion that our law students are having to create this database by hand, and each one takes hundreds of hours because we literally have to type in each of the thousands of names from PDF copies we get from sheriffs, is noteworthy. I mean, this is information the state of Mississippi should gather electronically. It should be available in real time. You know, we're only providing snapshots of certain points in time, uh, and the most accurate and reliable data would be to have a running, updated, real-time database available to the public that the, that the legislature requires um, be kept and maintained by the state of Mississippi. But until that happens, we think this information is so important that we're going, we've committed to two more years of at least once per semester we're going to produce these reports. Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi, thank you so much. Thanks. Coming up in our book club, meet author Steve Chessborough as he takes readers on a journey through the Mississippi blues scene. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Everything you ever wanted to know about where to find the Mississippi blues past and present is in today's book club selection. Steve Chesborough has written the fourth edition of his travel guide, Blues Traveling, the Holy Sites of the Delta Blues. Chesborough says searching for the past doesn't always yield the results one might hope for. For most of these artists, 
you're lucky to find anything connected to the person. It's not like you go to the presidential library and see or archives of so things that are connected to blues people, a lot of times you're seeing something that isn't there anymore. Sometimes you're seeing the ruins or the or an empty lot um where unfortunately so that's why this book helps you because you, if you understand the history, it makes it meaningful to you to see something that when there's really not much there to see, frankly. Looking through your book, though, it is very comprehensive. I mean, it, it seems to root out every nook and cranny, every corner, uh, every piece of land that is somehow related to the blues. How long and how much time and research did this take? So this being the fourth edition, I made an update trip of of about a month of going around and exploring things that I had already had in earlier editions just to see how they're doing after still there or not. And of course, f- trying to find new things um, where possible. Um, not that they're brand new. Again, we're, we're talking about blues history, but like one exciting thing that's new in this one is, <laughs> this is always the biggest question that people always ask me. Where's the cross? Where's the real crossroads? You know that Robert Johnson supposedly made a deal with the devil at the crossroads and, and sold his soul in exchange for musical ability. And everybody wants to know where the real crossroads is. There's a big sign in, in Clarksdale at, at the intersection of Highways 49 and 61 that says crossroads, and a lot of people go there. And I always say that makes no sense that you don't make a deal with the devil in at a big busy crossroad like that. You would go out to some lonely country crossroads if you do it at all i also but, say that the cross crossroads is really in your mind there but also no it was a few years back so clarksdale was probably not as busy but i believe now if you really want to go to the real crossroads i recently found out about a cemetery in wesson mississippi it's a little south of jackson and it's called beauregard cemetery and i believe that is where robert johnson took music lessons and practiced in this cemetery. He studied with a man named Ike Zimmerman. So in a sense, that's where Robert Johnson transformed himself was in that very cemetery. Not that there was anything supernatural. They didn't go there because they wanted to commune with the spirits of the dead. They went there because it was a quiet place where you could practice at night without bothering anyone or anyone bothering you. What prompted the fourth edition? You said you came back for a month, but were were there things that came to light that you weren't aware of the first three trips or so? You know, it's a guidebook, so things do change. Even in Mississippi, things change um, over the years. So you want to keep it current and see what needs to be added or subtracted or modified. Even ways to get places sometimes change. So, yeah, every few years it's good to update it, and University Press Still loves this book and wants me to keep updating it, so it's great. And we have the late B.B. King on the cover. Every time we have a new cover picture, and uh, we have a beautiful picture of the late B.B. King on there. He did have a copy of this book, actually. I met him once and gave him a copy, so it's it's nice to have him on the cover. Yeah. If you were to recommend to a friend, and they had one day to see things, what would you recommend? What are your favorite stops? The town of Clarksdale is fun because they've really made it a point to have live music pretty much every night of the week there. So that's always a good place to um, is to go to Clarksdale. And Red's juke joint there is one of the few real juke joints that live music regularly. 
So that's a good one. The blue front is another juke joint. That is um, in Bentonia, which has a long and interesting blue history for a tiny town. All right, in Jackson, Mississippi, actually, is a great place. There are actually a lot of blue heritage, and one of the best places to hear live music anywhere in the world, I think, is the Monday night Blue Monday Jam at Hallen Mills that the Central Mississippi Blue Society organizes. And there's always just terrific music and camaraderie in that. If you have one evening, I would say, in Mississippi, especially if you're flying through Jackson, get there on a Monday and go to Helen Mouse for the Monday Night Jam. Well, the book is Blues Traveling, the Holy Sites of Delta Blues, and we've been speaking with Steve Chessborough. This is the fourth edition with B.B. King on the cover. Steve, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. I hope to see everybody down there on the road sometime. <laughs> Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. At 10, it's MPB's all-new show, Autocorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.